Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly. Represented by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code DAN for a special offer when you sign up. That's code DAN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Been wanting to talk to this guy for a long time here. Written work, you can find it at the Lever. Lever Time Podcast is where you can find some of the other stuff that he is doing when it's not the written word. But I believe, David, and thank you for joining us, that uh, you are somebody who has covered corruption from both sides. I guess you probably get assassinated from both sides, but you uh, you don't think the Democrats are a whole lot better than the Republicans, and I think I can say this for you, maybe I can't, uh, that the Democrats are basically paid to lose, that corruption is so ever-present in every fiber of America's system that now our systems are failing. So I just wanted to get your expertise all over how and where America is failing and why. So again, thank you for joining us. But what is the corruption that keeps you up at night? Because you're surrounded by an awful lot of it. Well, I, look, I think that you're right that the in many cases, the Democrats are the Washington generals to the Republicans, uh, Harlem Glo- Globetrotters of evil. And I think if you analyze the problems in our country and are honest about how to how to solve them, then you can't just say it's the Harlem Globetrotters of evil or the reason that that they that they keep winning, uh, at least winning on policy. And we can talk about elections separately, but on policy, uh, policy can, continues in many cases to shift uh, to the right. And you, I think you can't be honest about that if you don't admit that the Washington generals are a part uh, of that game. Uh, and I think that's part of the what, what we look at in our reporting at levernews.com is is who's controlling the government, who's being paid, and and what's coming out when it comes to policy. And I think the corruption that keeps me up at night uh, is corruption that affects the policy that we're all relying on. So for instance, when the oil and gas companies are putting tons and tons of money into American politics, into elections, uh, when the private equity industry, which funds much of the oil and gas industry, puts so much money into politics, and out comes, for instance, a climate bill that has certainly a lot of good spending on renewable energy, but that ties that renewable energy expansion to an expansion of the fossil fuel industry, an expansion of fossil fuel development. When scientists are telling us that we need to stop new fossil fuel development in order to meet emissions targets, when that kind of corruption delivers a climate bill like that, that's the kind of thing that I am most worried about because what we should be doing, I think it, go, it, it it's worth reiterating, even though it should go without saying, is when scientists warn us that we need to do things for essentially human survival and the government uh, is producing policies that do, in many cases, the opposite of that in order to make the politicians donors more money that should be concerning to us all i don't care if you're a republican a democrat an independent that's just deeply concerning for anybody who wants to have the species survive on the planet how do we get here well, 
<laughs> I mean, look, the the story of the Democratic Party's uh, uh, move away from the New Deal uh, is a huge story. It, it It's a story that's been told, but frankly, it's I think it's lost to the memory hole. Uh, and I'll tell you the I mean, the broad strokes are this. I mean, there used to be a Democratic Party uh, in the era of Franklin Roosevelt. And by the way, he was breaking when he first came into office in the late early 30s. He broke from a previous Democratic Party tradition. But the FDR era was an era in which FDR diagnosed the problems of the country in with a basic fundamental belief that if you don't deliver for the working class, if you don't deliver for millions and millions of people, you will embolden uh, right-wing fascists to make their argument that uh, their program is better. I mean, he literally gave speeches about the idea that we have to directly deliver for the working people of this country or we will lose our democracy. Uh, we will not only make lots of people miserable, lots of workers and families and people in communities all over the country miserable, but we will actually lose our democracy. And so he put together the New Deal, and I'm, I'm speaking with very broad strokes here, and that was the most politically successful moment of the Democratic Party, not just moment, an era. Uh, and coming into the early 1980s when Ronald Reagan won and the conservatives ultimately chipped away uh, at the Democratic coalition. Uh, and you could argue that uh, there was a backlash that they, they fomented a really disgusting racist backlash to the civil rights movement, uh, that they started winning on some really ugly themes. And at that pivotal moment, instead of the Democratic Party doubling down on its support on the New Deal and its focus on helping workers with things like uh, Social Security, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, all of the New Deal alphabet programs that help workers. Instead of doing that, the Democrats said, hey, maybe we should throw in more with big business, that we can raise more money from big business, uh, and that will help us compete with Republicans. And guess who was excited for that? Big business was, ex was extremely excited about that because now they could get their tentacles into both political parties. And I don't want to pretend like, you know, prior to the to the 1980s that the Democrats, you know, were completely hostile to uh, big business or were a pure workers party. But that's the basic trajectory of it. The, the Democratic Leadership Council, the DLC, led this, uh, spearheaded this idea. And now you have ultimately a party whose political formula is we're going to go out and tell uh, voters that we're going to deliver for them. But we're also going to tell our donors we won't do anything that offends them, even though those donors are directly responsible for the problems that the workers who are being told the problems are going to be fixed, that, that the donors are responsible for those problems. So that's why in so many cases, the Democrats fighting the right wing Republican fascists sound incoherent because it's hard to sound genuine when you're telling the voters we're going to deliver for you, but you're also telling your donors we're not going to offend you. And so that's why we are here on something like climate. Look at the climate bill again. I think this bill is probably uh, better than nothing. Probably, I'm not sure. The emissions uh, uh, projections are pretty are pretty um, soft. They're pretty uh, speculative. Uh, but I, I still think it's it's probably better than nothing. It's a gamble. But the point is, it's not a, a real uh, a robust climate bill. It ties it to fossil fuel development because the Democrats decided. Listen, we don't want to tell 
our oil industry donors, we don't want to tell our energy industry donors, the utilities and the like, that they have to sacrifice anything. So what we're going to do is we're going to go out and pretend that we can satisfy everybody. We're going to put money into renewables. We're going to expand fossil fuel development. We're going to help the utilities. We're going to, we're going to do all these things, even when scientists say, listen, you have to make a choice. So that's why the sort of what the party is saying doesn't sound all that coherent. Like, how is it a climate bill if you're expanding fossil fuel development, right? Like the answer of, of how it got engineered is because the party doesn't want to tell its donors, hey, listen, you're going to have to change. You're going to have to sacrifice. If I asked you in a word, American systems appear to be failing because blank. Is it money? Is it just everyone's bought? I, I think it's corruption. Uh, and I think that that term, I think, encompasses greed. I mean, we have a deep culture of, of greed, systemic greed that pervades our political culture now. Corruption, meaning uh, I'm just, you know, legislators just being paid off uh, to do what their donors want. I mean, we have a system where it's completely normal, Dan, for somebody to work on the Hill for 15, 20 years and then go become a lobbyist for a private equity giant or an oil company uh, and use their connections that they made in the government to uh, deliver policy for who in the private sector, uh, whether it's a Wall Street firm or an oil company or anyone else, who's paying them. And that's considered, here's the thing, that's now considered completely normal, like not even immoral, uh, uh, sort of offensive. That's just like regular workaday Washington, D.C. Uh, so I put that underneath the idea of corruption, that corruption is now so baked into the assumptions of what the system is. Uh, that we uh, have trouble putting forward rational policies and it's and it's normalized. That's the thing that bothers me the most, that I think it's now normalized among many rank and file voters in this way, that we have the rise of cable TV news, which has taught voters to essentially see politics like a pundit, right? You have cable TV news saying, well, this bill is not re realistic, that bill is realistic. And, you know, we have to accept these, these compromises. Uh, we have to accept uh, anti-science policies because that's politically realistic. Now, let's listen. If politicians want to make excuses for the deals that they have to cut, that's their business. But a democracy stops functioning as well as it could when the voters themselves accept that the system is corrupt, accept that the system has to be compromised. But we have a situation where uh, lots of voters say, well, listen, you know, uh, yeah, the climate bill uh, maybe includes all this stuff that's bad for the climate. Um, uh, this provision on taxes is a giveaway uh, to Wall Street billionaires. But hey, listen, that's okay because that's what has to happen for it to be politically realistic to get things done. And I sit back and say, well, listen, if a politician wants to make that argument that they have to cut deals to get things through, let's say, a U.S. Senate, that's on them. They can make that argument. But when that becomes the attitude of voters, when voters are not led to hold their politicians accountable, to see politicians as working for the voters, not the voters working for the politicians, then we have a level of, of sort of systemic normalization of corruption that creates all sorts of problems. How did it get fast forwarded, though, as you make the argument that corruption is more corrupt now? Well, look, I, I Let's be clear. I think, you know, 100 years ago in the Gilded Age, uh, and I think we are living in kind of a new Gilded Age, there was like, you know, cash 
stuffed envelopes uh, for to buy Senate seats and the like. I think now we have a couple of different uh, maneuvers that big money has to use in order to accomplish the same goals. Uh, but I think the normalization of politics is a corrupt business at a cultural level as part of it. And then I think, obviously, I, I should have mentioned this before, there's an entire legal architecture of corruption. I mean, that, that I, I should have mentioned this at the top. Uh, John Roberts's court, you know, we talk a lot about uh, uh, these very high profile rulings that are terrible, the repeal of Roe and the like, terrible rulings. But John Roberts's equally uh, destructive legacy is to create an entire legal architecture that legalized corruption. Uh, Citizens United uh, was, he was on the court when that happened, which essentially said um, that big money interests can spend unlimited sums of money effectively to buy elections, uh, and that that is not corruption. Uh, you had a, a separate series of rulings uh, that have made it easier and easier to buy politicians and to buy elections. I mean, there was one ruling about the governor of, uh, of Virginia uh, in which he was doing uh, setting up meetings and doing kind of explicit political favors for a donor. Uh, prosecutors came in, prosecuted him on corruption, and the Supreme Court, John Roberts Court, sweep, swooped in to say, hey, uh, that's basically not corruption. And then you had this most recent ruling, and these are low profile rulings, but they are so important. You had this recent ruling with the Ted Cruz case, it was a couple months ago, where it basically said a candidate can lend their campaign money and then be paid back with interest directly into their pocket now, not just into their campaign, into their bank account. They can be paid back after the election is over with interest by their donors and their donors, of course, seeking legislative favors. So I guess my point is, is that on top of a kind of normalization of corruption, people thinking, listen, it's okay. This is how government works. It's okay. You know, it's just politically realistic for the system to be corrupt. We now have a legal architecture that said corruption is now legalized. And I do think that sets us apart from other countries, that other countries, it's not that other countries are necessarily, I'm not idealizing other, you know, other industrialized countries, but other countries said corruption is a problem. We said, yeah, there's corruption. You know what we're going to do? We're going to make it legal. We're going to literally create laws that say the corruption is legal. So when you look at, at the, the indices of countries uh, on the corruption index, we're, we're, we're not at the very top of like most corrupt countries, but part of the reason we're not at the top is because that is tracking what is extra legal corruption, like literally illegal under the country's laws. What we did was we said a lot of the corruption is now perfectly legal, that, that corruption isn't corruption. It's just politics. Can you help me understand why the IRS is falling apart or has fallen apart, is broken? Sure. Sure. Listen, there was years and years of underfunding of the IRS to the point where uh, the audit rates of the super rich declined uh, precipitously uh, and the automatic uh, easy to do, although draconian audits of poor people essentially stayed on the books or even increased. Right. That it's harder to audit the super rich because they have teams of lawyers and it's easier to audit uh, people getting the earned income tax credit, uh, people on the low, lower end of the income spectrum. Uh, and so there was a very deliberate campaign to sap the IRS of its basic uh, budgetary uh, resources. Uh, and so you've got a situation where the IRS uh, has essentially uh, 
as you said, fallen apart. Now, I do think in this climate bill, uh, there is one of the one of the best parts of the bill, separate from climate, is a lot more funding for the IRS. And you now see the Republicans saying, oh, the Democrats are, are you know, putting together a tax Gestapo, which is so dishonest. I mean, listen, I'm a critic of the Democrats on a lot of things, but the IRS falling apart is really good for nobody other than, than the super rich. It's not good for small and medium-sized businesses who, who can't even communicate effectively with the tax agency. It's not good for uh, government agencies that need uh, funding that, that rely on funding from basic tax collection. It's good for people with ar armies of lawyers, the collapse of the IRS. Uh, and my hope is, is that if this bill passes, that the IRS will start to be uh, rebuilt because it, it's a it's a huge problem. What are some of the other American systems failing that alarm you? Well, certainly, look, the healthcare system is, uh, I mean, let's let's talk about that for a second. I mean, the healthcare system, I saw this headline a couple couple days ago that uh, we've reached the lowest level of uninsured. Uh, that's good if you think about it for five seconds. Uh, then you think about the fact that the health insurance companies are making record profits and once again, jacking up uh, their premiums, that the drug, uh, the pharmaceutical industry is continuing to jack up its prices. It managed to get lots of the strong provisions in the climate bill stripped out. It used its army of lobbyists. So we have a situation, and this is, this is the part that just kills me. We have a situation where we are the only industrialized country in the world that does not guarantee healthcare uh, as a basic human right, does not have a fully universal government-sponsored system. Uh, and we were told 10 years ago that we didn't have to choose. Remember this, the, the Affordable Care Act debate. If you remember what that debate was about, uh, there was a push to say, hey, listen, we need to expand Medicare to cover everybody, or we at least lead, need a public option, a public insurance option to compete with the private insurers. All of that was shoved out of the bill. And what the Affordable Care Act ended up being was a massive government subsidy to the private health insurance industry, a mandate that people had to get coverage and then a subsidy to help them get coverage. Who does that serve? Well, that serves the private health insurance companies that buy Washington, D.C. Now, I would, would agree that people in the short and medium term who didn't have insurance, who were it was they were more able to get insurance. And that is a good side benefit of the bill. But ultimately, what we decided to do was use a ton of money to prop up a wildly inefficient and immoral uh, middleman between people and their and medical providers, the health insurance companies uh, and the drug companies. That's what we decided to do. And now we are here where we celebrate more coverage, but coverage as anyone who's ever tried to get uh, medical care knows cover insurance coverage doesn't necessarily mean medical care. It doesn't necessarily mean health care. It can often mean medical bankruptcy. And by the way, it is a huge uh, ripoff in the sense of what we spend now on health care versus what we could spend uh, on something like an expansion of Medicare, that we would be spending as a nation so much less. But the, but the there are powerful interests making lots of profits off of the fact that we have an inefficient system. In other words, the inefficiency is where they make 
their money. So we are living in the in the wealthiest country in the world and also the only industrialized country in the world that doesn't guarantee a basic medical care. And by the way, we know that not having that system resulted in hundreds of thousands of excess deaths during the pandemic. That's a recent report from Yale University researchers. So we have just we've apparently just accepted this. And and to be clear, Joe Biden campaigned on a public option, promising at least a public health insurance option. I mean, he campaigned against Medicare for all. But he did say he did promise uh, a public health insurance option. He hasn't even mentioned that uh, during his presidency, instead focusing on simply adding more Affordable Care Act subsidies. In other words, shoveling even more money to the health insurance companies rather than deciding that we have to actually fix the problem. Is there a bronze medalist among failing American systems? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, you know, I mean, we've gone through healthcare, we've gone through the energy system. Uh, I, I certainly think, look, I, I certainly think um, when, when it comes to uh, the basic social safety net, uh, we did a report at levernews.com. There was this graph, it was incredible, uh, that we we found um, and we took the data from Census Bureau data, which is the best thing that Joe Biden did, in my view, was the American Rescue Plan. When he came into office, we were in a crisis, an economic crisis, a pandemic crisis. And for the first time I can really ever remember in my lifetime, instead of bailing out the people at the top, the government essentially wrote a huge check to the rest of us, right? It wrote a big check to, to working people, non-rich, non-elite people. And here's what the chart showed that when that check was cut, and granted, it's a bunch of different programs, most, most importantly, the child tax credit. When that check was cut, the number of people saying that they were economically struggling to get by precipitously dropped. It was a huge success. Child poverty dropped. Then, because they didn't make any of them permanent, when the programs eventually terminated in about a year, guess what? The number of families in the Census Bureau saying that they are economically struggling to survive skyrocketed. Uh, now, you can argue that some of that is inflation, and we can talk about where inflation comes from and the like. But the point is, is that we ripped the rug out from millions and millions of people, even though we had the data showing that the programs were successful. And so then you have to ask, well, why did we rip the rug out from people? And I think Part of the answer is, is that um, there's this idea that people who are relying somewhat on a safety net are lazy or greedy or undeserving. I mean, that is so baked into our culture. There also isn't wasn't an organized a political constituency to protect those benefits, right? When we talk, when you watch legislation and you hear about lobbyists running around the Capitol, right? Uh, private equity lobbyists or health insurance lobbyists, those are organized political constituencies which, with huge amounts of money, right? I mean, there's some stat about, you know, every member of Congress has 10, you know, for every member of Congress, there's 10 lobbyists, right? Those lobbyists don't represent regular ordinary working people, right? They don't represent regular people. Uh, and so when the child tax credit expires, there's not you know, a, a white shoe law firm from a private equity firm lobbying for it. It just falls by the wayside. I mean, we had a situation in the Senate. I mean, let me blow your mind for a second. There was a situation in the Senate where this just happened last week, where I think it was 97 to three or 99 to one voted against adding 
the reinstatement of the child tax credit into this big spending bill moving through Congress. Then a few hours later, the same Senate voted to shield private equity billionaires from a new corporate minimum tax, right? I mean, this happened in real time that people are struggling. A wildly popular child tax credit could have been added back into that bill. It was rejected by the Senate, which then hours later went on to protect its private equity donors, donors that have given, I wanna blow your mind here, a private equity industry that has dumped a quarter billion dollars of campaign contributions into the federal political system in just the last two elections. That's the problem. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you come home every day pissed off or are you numb to it? <laughs> no, I come home every day pissed off and depressed. I mean, I definitely do. I mean, I, my kids and my, 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 look, my wife is a state legislator in Colorado and, you know, I'm constantly like complaining to her and, you know, some days she's like, I can't, I can't listen to it. So yes, I get, I, I, I get ticked off about it. I feel, I feel sad about it a lot, but I also feel mad. And maybe it's like, you know, there's a little bit of like dark side of the force stuff going on, right? Where it's like, you know, anger leads to hate, hate leads to whatever. But like I, the what powers me in my work is that I get sad, I get depressed, and then I get mad. And then I realize, listen, it's not acceptable for us to become sad uh, and depressed. I mean, it's th- those are feelings are legit, but I have children, right? I have people in my community I care about. I, I care about you know, I, I care about humans, if you will, not to be cheesy about it. And so I, there's no option to to give up. I was, giving up is just not a choice we can make uh, when it comes to any of the crises we're talking about. So what gets me through the day is like, listen, I'm just trying to do what I can to spotlight what's actually going on. Because here's the thing. I do think it's easier to just not pay attention. <laughs> McKay and I made that movie, Don't Look Up. I do think it's just easier to just not look up. Right. It's reassuring and 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 comforting. And I just can't look at it. Right. But if we don't look up, it's not like the problems are going to get better. Right. I mean, that's that's the thing, especially in, in a in a so-called democracy. And we can discuss whether we actually live in a democracy. Uh, I think all the legalized corruption actually has severely limited our uh, what a democracy is. But with whatever shred of democracy we have left, it is incumbent on all of us to not just look away. It is incumbent on all of us to do everything we can possibly do to make things better. Because here's the thing, we may not succeed in getting the greatest climate policy. We may not succeed in getting the best healthcare policy. We may not succeed in getting the best social safety net policy. But if we succeed a little bit, or even part of the way, we're talking about potentially saving millions and millions and millions of lives and making millions and millions and millions of lives a little bit or even significantly better. So that's what keeps me going. And where do helpless and hopeless fit in there? How do you mean? Just that you're fighting every day and more and more corruption springs up. You get the Cuomo story that there's a cover up on death and the market gets saturated with so much shame from so many angles that 
that both Cuomos can virtually withstand everything because no matter what your journalistic fight is, you're losing. Well, no, I mean, I, I think I, I think that's true and not true. Meaning, yes, if you take the short term view that every story like, you know, when, I, when we busted open the story of Andrew Cuomo uh, doing a deal uh, with his healthcare industry donors and then shielding those donors uh, from the legal consequences of all those horrible deaths uh, in uh, New York uh, during the, the, the early days of the pandemic. When we exposed that story, yes, there were days where I was like, man, we nailed that story. We totally nailed it. We were we, we just busted it open. And then there are days you're like, what? nothing happened from it. I don't get it. Nothing, not, nothing happened. But but that's the short view. What I tell myself, at least in the in the long view, is this all is part of a larger drumbeat. And my sort of personal mission, like my personal goal is to make more of the people who are listening to this show, more of the people who are out there who think, you know, politics is not for me to get engaged in and I can't stand following it and I'm not interested in it. If we get even a segment of those people to say, you know what, I am going to be engaged. I am going to hold my elected officials accountable. I'm going to actually, uh, do the things to get them thrown out of office. I'm going to do the things to make them feel pressure. I'm going to do the things to actually hold them accountable. If we can get even some of those folks motivated, that can change the game. And you know how I know that? It's because that's exactly what the American right did, right? Here's the thing. You you know, go back in the time machine, get in the DeLorean, fire up the flux capacitor, go back to the 50s, go back to the, to the 60s, when the conservatives were kind of in, in a lot of ways out of power. And they had a, a simple idea, an organizing idea, that if we get even a small number of people, relatively small number of people motivated uh, around holding elected officials accountable on our agenda, we can ultimately move the entire agenda. And so it's my goal, like when I hear people who will go back to the Democratic Party for a second, when I hear people who were kind of lobotomized by MSNBC, uh, lobotomized to think, hey, whatever the Democrats do must be good. And anybody asking questions about what they're doing must be bad. When I hear when I see that and I think, listen, if we can motivate a, a group of those people, uh, what I call kind of normie Democrats to say, you know what, I'm sick of the Democrats saying they can't do anything with the power they have. And we're going to actually hold them accountable. If we can do that, we I think we can actually get some changes. Like when, and I think, by the way, I think the Roe v. Wade overturning may have prompted some of this, that people started finally asking, hey, wait a minute, Barack Obama told me when he had near 59 or 60 Senate votes that his first priority was to codify Roe v. Wade. And then he got into office and at one of his first press conferences, he said it's not his priority. Why did that happen? That's unacceptable that that happened, right? I think people suddenly woke up to that uh, a couple months ago uh, when the Supreme Court actually overturned Roe. And I think a lot of people said, hey, listen, I want my state legislators. I want my Congress people to take this seriously. Like, I think those are moments of uh, like aha moments. And if we can create more of those through media, through journalism, through investigative reporting, through organizing, I think that is ultimately what's gonna save us.
you believe campaign promises? You've been in this long enough to uh, not believe campaign promises. Why did that happen with Obama? Because I think he just decided that he he in 2007, he was campaigning for president. So he was making promises all over the place. And in 2009, he just decided, you know what? No liberal is going to be mad at me if I don't do this. Uh, and no one's going to hold me accountable. I guess that's my point is that especially when it comes to the Democrats, they don't feel like they need to honor their campaign promises. I mean, I've said this before, I'll say it again. The difference between Democratic Party voters and Republican voters, one core difference is this, that Republican voters have been conditioned to demand things from their politicians and hold them accountable electorally in, in Republican primaries if they don't deliver on those, those promises. Democratic voters have been conditioned to never hold their elected officials accountable, to uh, see it as uh, apostasy to try to hold them accountable in uh, Democratic electoral primaries. And that, I mean, that's rudimentary. That's a, a it's kind of a, a kind of a little bit too broad, but I do think that core difference in the dynamic uh, is a lot of what explains why we're here. I mean, let's let's take one last example here. Uh, you remember how the Democrats keep saying that they can't do things in the Senate because of a parliamentarian? You've heard this, like the parliamentarian, right? This, what, right? Like, and I, I feel like a lot of people who heard that were like, well, what the hell is a parliamentarian? What, I don't even know what that is, right? It sounds like some like royal position. The parliamentarian is an aide to the U.S. Senate that the Democrats can fire or can ignore. It is an advisory position. And the Democrats have gone out repeatedly and said, hey, listen, we can't pass the minimum wage that we promised because of the parliamentarian. The parliamentarian won't rule it uh, as okay under Senate rules. Uh, we can't do uh, insulin pricing, cap insulin pricing, uh, because listen, uh, sorry, but the, the parliamentarian said we can't do it. We can't fulfill our promises on immigration reform because the parliamentarian said it's out of order. And what I said before, I will say again, You've never heard the Republicans use that argument because the the rank and file Republican voter and the, the groups that support the Republicans would say that is a laughing stock joke we, that, that we're not believing that at all. Like that is not an excuse. But Democratic Party voters, by and large, Democratic Party pundits, uh, a lot of the groups uh, in Washington that support Democrats, They've just accepted that, like that's a legitimate excuse. And I'm sitting back and saying, listen, what we have to get to is a politics where if a majority leader, a Senate Democratic majority leader comes out and says, I can't get a promised minimum wage because of a parliamentarian, everyone says that's complete crap. Nobody believes that to the point where a Senate majority leader in some utopian future, Democratic majority leader would never actually use that excuse because he would know he or she would know that the Democratic voting electorate would not tolerate it. We're not there yet. And we need to be there. Since you brought it up, what is the state of American democracy? Listen, man, I think it's I think it's teetering. I mean, I think it's teetering. And I think a lot of people will put their hopes into the January 6th hearings. And I certainly support the hearings and holding uh, uh, the folks who organized the, the insurrection and the riots, holding them accountable. I think the hearings were basic law and order stuff that should have happened. But I think we are deluding ourselves if we think that the January 6th hearings uh, or an investigation of Donald Trump's crimes and the like uh, will solve our democracy problems. I think that's uh, I think that's delusional thinking. I go back to what FDR said in 1938. I'll paraphrase a, a quote from him. Uh, so he's looking out at a world in which other industrialized countries have gone fascist. Uh, he's looking at a country, his own country, where there was a big fascist movement uh, at the time, 
uh, you know, fascist rallies in Madison Square Garden and the like. And he said, uh, other countries, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said basically other countries uh, uh, have discarded democracy, uh, not because they didn't like liberty, uh, but because they saw a government that was dysfunctional and not delivering for people. And they decided to, to sacrifice democracy in the hopes of getting something to eat. That was what he said. And I think that we delude ourselves uh, into thinking that we, that I should say liberals, I think, delude themselves into thinking that going out and just saying we need to protect democracy if we're not showing how democracy works for working people. In other words, if the democratic system is not materially improving the working class's lives, then when you go to the voters and say, hey, listen, I know we haven't passed the minimum wage. I know we cut off the child tax credit. I know we haven't delivered for you, but you got to vote for us to protect democracy. A lot of voters are going to say, listen, I voted for you last time. I used the democratic process to put you in power on your promises to materially improve our lives. And you didn't do that. So why do I care about democracy? I mean, ultimately, democracy can only stand if it's delivering for the people who are electing the politicians. I mean, ultimately, you want to, you know, what's the democracy crisis in America? Yes, it was expressed in, in one way uh, as the as the riot at the Capitol. But the democracy crisis in America is a system of legalized bribery that makes sure that when people elect representatives on campaign promises, that those promises are not delivered. Because ultimately, if democracy, not to get too academic about it here, but if democracy is self-governance, and we keep electing people promising to do X, Y, and Z, and a small cadre of donors and elites make sure that X, Y, and Z don't, don't happen, that is not self-governance. That is not democracy. That is kind of the patina of democracy. But in functional, functionally, it is oligarchy. You've been covering corruption for a long time. So when you're watching January 6th happen, are you surprised by it? Are you thinking to yourself, well, I could have seen this coming? Do you have the clarity of retrospect after it's happened? Oh, of course I should have seen this coming, but I never thought it would happen in my country. I, I was not surprised when, when the January 6th stuff happened. Uh, in fact, but I was, I was mostly scared about what might come next. That's what keeps me up at night, which is that the January 6th situation, I think, was a preview of what could come next if the opposition to that, the opposition party standing between government by whatever that was uh, and, and this, that if the opposition party does not materially deliver for millions and millions of people, that is what I fear what would, would, would be a preview of what is to come. That, that the Democrats have to be able to go out and say, you use the democratic process to elect us. Here is what we delivered. Keep putting us in power and we will keep delivering. FDR, look, he wasn't perfect. I mean, there were a lot of things to criticize FDR about, but he fundamentally understood that. He was looking at other allies uh, like Weimar Germany or previous allies, uh, Weimar Germany, uh, looking at Europe, France and the like, uh, Italy, uh, and saw at, that, at the time advanced countries fall to fascism. And he understood the best way to try to stop that is to show a democratic, small d democratic government that actually works to de-radicalize the working class by actually delivering for them.
And I, I, what keeps me up at night is the, is the basically the fear that the people in power right now don't understand that at all. Don't appreciate that at all. I mean, you got, look, you got Joe Biden sitting there in the white house. He could cancel student debt for what is it? 50 million people. And here's the thing, 50 million people means it touches like 80 million people. Cause like everybody knows somebody, right? You, you got a family member and the like, right? He could assign a piece of paper and materially improve the lives of like 50 million people, another 20, 30 million people, probably secondarily. And he hasn't done it. And we're three months from an election. And I get, I'm, I'm, not, I'm only using that as one example. Like the posture of the people in power who are trying, who say they want to stop the kind of Donald Trump fascist movement, the posture needs to be, we are doing literally every possible thing we can to show that we are helping materially improve the lives of voters right now. The Republicans may scream when we cancel student debt. They may scream if we raise the minimum wage and the like. But what we need to be doing is focusing on delivering so that when people go into that ballot box, they don't say, hey, listen, the the Democrats haven't delivered anything for me and I'm just going to vote for the fascists. That's what we need to prevent. The greatest threat to our teetering democracy is blank. I think it's, I mean, I think it's, I mean, we talked about corruption, I guess, right-wing authoritarianism in this sense, right-wing authoritarianism that can seize on a vacuum of political leadership, right-wing authoritarianism that can make an opportunity out of uh, inaction. We did this podcast series uh, last year, Alex Gibney, the director and I, it was called, um, it was called Meltdown. And it told a story that really hasn't been very well told which is there's a lot of stories told about uh, what happened to create the financial crisis. Uh, Adam McKay, for instance, had his whole movie, you know, uh, 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 The Big Short. Our podcast was a story of how the failure to robustly and seriously deal with the aftermath of the financial crisis created the political environment for Donald Trump to succeed. That Obama bailing out the 13 bankers who created the crisis while millions were foreclosed on. So he comes in campaigning on hope and change. He gets into power. He bails out. The average person sees him bailing out Goldman Sachs, uh, uh, you know, working with George Bush first during the campaign. And then, you know, it took, you know, sort of bipartisan bailout, and then continuing those bailouts when he became president while millions were foreclosed on. And in Russia's the right-wing uh, movement to say, see, you elected them on hope and change. What did they deliver? They delivered for their donors. They delivered more of the same. And that created the political environment for Donald Trump. And by the way, you don't have to believe me on that. It was none other than Steve Bannon who said, quote, the legacy of the financial crisis is Donald J. Trump. And I tell you that story because we made that podcast series to, as a reminder of like, if that history repeats, then we should expect the same political situation to also repeat. That if the Democrats are given power back again, which they were in 2020, by the way, barely, they barely won. And they don't deliver for working people, then we should expect the same results in 2024. Last thing before we let you go, let's play for the audience. Chris Christie hammering David Sirota. <laughs> and the article that spurred all this conversation has been written by a guy who is a completely discredited journalist who's been fired for being inaccurate and inflammatory before. 
So, you know, right now, anybody who can, you know, pop up on a website calls themselves a journalist. David Sirota is not a journalist. He's a hack. <laughs> oh, it's the greatest day of my life, man, or at least my professional life. I mean, my, my, kid, my kids being born was the greatest day of my life. Uh, the greatest day of my professional life, uh, some context on that. Uh, and I'm here, by the way, at the Jersey Shore with family right now. So I, I actually super appreciate uh, that Chris Christie clip. Uh, my mom called me when that happened. It was back in 2014. And that was when Chris Christie was really popular. And she was like, oh, my God, Chris Christie attacked you. Like, well, are you worried? Are you scared? I was like, Mom, this is the greatest, this greatest professional day of my life. It's amazing. And this, the story was, is that what we were doing was we uncovered a series of stories in which uh, uh, politically connected Wall Street firms uh, were getting huge pension investments, investments uh, that Christie, uh, Christie's administration controlled, investments of, of police officers, teachers, firefighters, retirement funds were being given to these huge politically connected uh, finance firms. Uh, and that Christie's very good friend, longtime life friend was put in charge of the investment board. Uh, and he ran a financial company himself. Uh, and his company was getting involved in, in one of the with one of the investment firms that was benefiting. So basically, a very sort of a story of pension corruption. And Chris Christie ultimately got sick of it and started attacking me personally. He couldn't answer the, I mean, we were, you know, we were uncovering documents. It wasn't just me alleging it, right? We had like documents, we did open records requests. I mean, it was real, you know, just honest to goodness reporting and he couldn't stand it. And I used that clip in a recent speech about um, the underdog, which is to say that, listen, anytime you are digging around the heart of power, anytime you are challenging power, anytime that you are asking uh, uh, inconvenient questions of power, that's the response you're going to get. And when you get that response, you shouldn't, you shouldn't see it uh, as much as an insult as you should see it as a badge of honor. Now, that's my internal positive monologue talking to me, like sort of Stuart Smalley monologue, right? Like you're good enough, you're strong enough, and doggone it, people like you. But I'll admit that, you know, also when that happened, I did get a little nervous, right? Chris Christie was a very popular, powerful governor when, when he did that. And it was a little scary. I felt a little bit out on a limb. But I have, you know, sort of come, the, my sort of better internal monologue is like, listen, when, when that happens, you know, Andrew Cuomo, his staff attacked us when we did the nursing home. Story. The point is, is that anybody who hears this, whatever, if you're confronting your local congressperson, if you're at the city council and you're demanding something, why did the money go in and this came out and this policy screwed us? The people you're asking those questions of, they're not going to like you. They're going to be unhappy. They're going to make you try to try to make you feel small. But again, when they do, that's a sign that you are winning. That is not a sign that you are losing. David, appreciate the time. I want to say pleasure, but it was pretty gloomy. Pretty uh, so, no, Sorry, man. <laughs> no, but I appreciate that you're out there uh, fighting the good fight, and we'll have you on again. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it. Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start, same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley, SAB, the CV, copyright 2024, Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey, please drink responsibly.